Hi and welcome to Where Do We Begin podcast. My name is Melissa Wu and I'm a four-time Olympian and an Olympic silver and bronze medalist. Lockie, we're back. How's it feel? Mate, back like a bad rash harps and I could not be more excited for today's guest. Oh, it is so, so good and a special episode as well. A bit of a milestone for us. Episode number 50. We've had 100 plus of, kind of all kinds of episodes, but 50th interview episode. It's super exciting and we could not have asked for a more exciting guest to join us on this episode number 50. A massive name in Australian sport, of course, Olympic diver just coming off the Tokyo 2020 Games. Melissa Wu, how are you, Mel? I'm good, thanks. How are you guys? Oh, absolutely splendid. Another beautiful day in lockdown. And now with the first question, we always like to go for a bit of, bit of a curly one and it's just basically explain the sports. And you know, I'm not, I'm not an expert, although I might look like a diving expert due to my physique, but <laughs> I, I get the basic principles. You jump into the pool, but tell us a little bit more about the scoring system. You know, I understand that you have five dives. Can you do all, have all the five same dives, like five quadruple backflips, or do you have to have different ones? Yeah, good question to start. So diving, you basically the men and the women do a different amount of dives. So the women compete five dives and the men compete six. And on platform, which is the event that I do, there's only like six different directions that you can actually do. Uh, so it's front, back, inward, reverse, handstand and twist. So <laughs> for anyone that knows what they are um, out there. So basically the men have to cover all groups on platform and the women get to pick whichever group they don't like to leave off. And then for springboard, they, you do the same amount of dives, but for men, because there's only five groups on springboard because you don't do a handstand, the, the men will repeat a direction dive. And then the women just have to cover all five dives. So there's actually like not that many different variations of dives you can do. You don't can't like really make up your own or anything like that. Like in <laughs> some other sports, there's really only like six or five different directions depending on springboard or platform. And then you basically either do like two and a half or three and a half for women or three and a half or four and a half for men. So most of the time, a lot of the athletes in the comps will actually have similar lists of dives. And the only thing that you can then kind of be a little bit strategic on is um, the order that you do your dives. But it doesn't really help because at the end of the day, you still have to compete them all. Um, but I guess in terms of like pressure or putting pressure on other divers or which order you feel more comfortable, that's probably the only sort of part where you have a little bit more control over. But you do have to submit your dives 24 hours before the event. So it's not like you can change it in the middle of the event or anything. <laughs> I can tell you yeah, there was a diving right. movie in Hollywood. I'm sure that they do this thing where the person changes the dive last minute and it's an amazing yeah. thing. Surprise the opposition, but it's not like that, is it, Harps? It's oh, not yeah. as exciting as <laughs> But um, you mentioned just before, like the women having less dives than the men. I know in tennis, we were talking about tennis off air, uh, women have less sets than men in the Grand Slams and there's a bit of uh, controversy around that. People, Some people want that changed. Same for the diving community. Do people want a level playing field for both genders? Um, I haven't really heard too much discussion on that. Uh, I don't like. Don't think it's a bad thing, like if women were to do that. Uh, but, yeah, I think that maybe they made it that way for a reason because there hasn't really been much kind of um, opinion on that around the world. So maybe everyone's happy to just leave it the way it is. Harper's showing his diving knowledge there. And obviously, so you perform yeah. in the 10-metre platform. Can you tell us a little bit about the decision to perform in the platform compared to the springboard and why you decided to go on the platform? Because I'll tell you why, I wouldn't be jumping off of something 10 metres high like that into water. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I totally can agree with what you're saying there. And actually, I guess you don't really make it, like you don't really decide I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. Unfortunately, it comes down to what you're good at. So if I was good at springboard, 
Springboard. I would 100% stick to Springboard. But um, I'm just, I think because I was always so small when I was younger and obviously you need a bit of weight behind you, a lot more muscle mass to be able to um, move the board and get the most out of it. So I got good at platform when I was younger and then because I just kept um, traveling and competing and preparing for events on platform, I then trained even less on springboard. So I just didn't get time to commit to it and, and just in general, wasn't as good at springboard. So I'm happy to stick to (laughs) platform because it comes a lot more naturally to me. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, I'll be shitting myself either way, to be honest, but with kind (laughs) of diving in general, it's not like the most high profile sport in Australia, not super mainstream like your Aussie rules or rugby league or anything like that. But you're probably one of the most famous divers in Australia, if not the most famous diver. So a bit of a weird question, but do you like, as the kind of face of diving in Australia at the moment, do you get recognized in the street much, get recognized in the street at all? Um, occasionally, not too often. Like you said, it's a pretty small sport. <laughs> There's not a lot of uh, yeah, it's not really out there, especially between Olympic cycles. It, it goes a bit quiet for us in terms of exposure. But yeah, every now and then I get noticed <laughs> on the street. Uh, is, have you got like a particularly funny story from someone recognizing you in the street from over the years? Uh, nothing in particular, but I think because I was, um, I got a bit more exposure when I was younger. I think in general, people just think that I'm still like a little girl. Um, and they, they are surprised that I've like grown as I've aged, like everybody else does. Um, so probably that's the only thing. And they still think I'm like really young, but I'm definitely not anymore. Well, I'll tell you what, Mel, you've been living uh, rent free on my For You page. So I might be char- have to charge you rent on uh, the old TikTok app. We, lo- we love your content on there. So I'm sure plenty of people will recognize you on your strong social media presence. And we touched on it a little bit before about the 10 meter platform. Just what is the courage it takes to jump off that and do like flips and do these crazy, crazy dives. Because I think the courage that's required for dives, because you you see them and you think, wow, like the fact that they can do that is like those flips, it's so beautiful. But also you forget about the amount of courage that it would actually take to just do that. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, so diving, you've got to make it look as graceful as possible, as easy as possible, but a lot of people don't realise that there's like a lot of um, pain and tears (laughs) going to getting to that point. And definitely every diver, especially at the Olympic level, would have had a million wipeouts, a million smacks on the water um, throughout their career. It's pretty much par for the course in diving, but like you said, it's really important um, that you have that courage and sometimes the courage is – um, you know, going in the first place, just being able to get off the board and do the dive. Or sometimes it is after you've had a bad experience, being able to get back up and try again, even though uh, you're really scared. <laughs> and I think it's a skill that you definitely develops over time. And you're everybody's always scared in diving. You don't really just not. You, I don't know many people that are just not scared. But I think it it comes down to um, having a good rapport with your coach and preparing as well as you can for the dive and being able to kind of just forget about the fear and just focus more on the technique and execute that. Because if you think about the fear and you let that consume you, then it's it's really, really scary. Well, what's the scariest one, scariest dive for you? Uh, I think I'm not really that scared of my dives anymore, but sometimes like as I got older and I, and I got more injured, sometimes the fear for me on dives would not be about the actual dive, but I knew that I was going to – like make an injury worse or I was scared of like the physical repercussions of like hitting the water even if I hit the water fine like it was a good dive I think for me as it was interesting when I was younger the fear was really I was just scared but when I got older I was like oh no, I'm just my body is gonna break I'm really scared about that um and it was a different kind of fear yeah so where do you so 
talking about that fear, so I think it's interesting. So obviously you, you have your five set dice, but and you, you got described as a veteran before, which at 29 years of age, I don't think you're a veteran, even though you have been to four Olympics. <laughs> but I guess particularly when you were starting, how did you sort of try those hard dives? Like how did you build up to practicing them, build up that confidence to eventually going and doing it in the pool and competing with it at, at events? So 50% of our training is actually uh, doing dry land training. So we every afternoon we spend in the pool practicing our dives, but then we also do morning sessions every morning and they're split up. Some of them are gym sessions where we just do weights and then other sessions are in like a gymnastic center where we um, basically like somersault on trampolines and into foam pits and on crash mats. And when I was younger, we did a lot of harness work as well. So you basically just try and replicate the dives as much as you can so you have the feeling of it before you go in the pool and do it. And you'll do like hours and weeks and months of repetitions and repetitions to build the feeling, build the feeling. And then it never quite mimics it exactly, but you can just basically prepare as well as you can uh, before you then go and do it in the water. Yeah. So like in the build up to these Olympics, were you still spending kind of 50-50 in and out of the water? Yeah, for sure. So even though even like though I've been doing like the same dive list for many, many years, dryland is still a really big part of our training and even though we use dryland as a tool to learn new dives and to prepare even if you already have the feeling of dives it's a really good way to build a lot of repetition so for example like on platform and i mentioned like injuries before and generally for platform dives you can't do like heaps and heaps of repetitions on 10 meter because your body just won't be able to take that and you'll end up going backwards instead of continuing to move forwards so the way that you can build repetition in practicing your takeoffs or certain elements of the dives you can break it down in dryland and just focus on like specific parts of it and then just get your reps in that way so that when you get into the pool you can basically just convert all the hard work that you've done and you don't have to kill your body trying to do it in the pool. Yeah so something that I'm interested in in that like, I guess looking like at what you've put up on social media is the importance of core work in diving. Can you explain sort of how that helps and translates into the finished product? Yeah for sure. So core is really important um, for a number of reasons in diving. So, um, core is important uh, to firstly like when you create rotation you've got to be able to get into small positions really quickly so your core helps with that and then when you're rotating in the air you're you're kind of you're falling and you're somersaulting so it's really hard to kind of fight that gravity and make a small shape and you I find for me personally when I dive the thing that works the most when I try and get into a small shape in the air is my core and you can use your arms and everything else to kind of help you but basically core does the bulk of the work and then when you um kick out and you stop the rotation obviously again fighting gravity you have to stop you've been rotating yes you have to be able to stop that rotation really quickly that uses your core and then and then when you hit the water as well you've got to hold your line you've got to not get injured when you hit the water and try and make as little splash as possible so basically you need a like your core the whole way through the dive so we that's probably the number one muscle group that we train um that and legs probably are the two main two main ones yeah unreal thanks for covering that for us mel i feel like i'm a diving expert now and (laughs) i saw one last thing which i absolutely love is that you're probably the only 29 year old i know that has a trampoline in her backyard i absolutely love that (laughs) (laughs) i love it i'm like still a kid i love flipping around and doing all that stuff it's so fun (laughs) so like you must have had a bit of a, well, not must have, but I'm, I imagine a few divers had a bit of a background in kind of gymnastics, that kind of thing, yeah? 
Yeah, most do actually. I'm probably like one of the only ones that didn't really have much of a background. I actually started diving because my sister was uh, quite a good swimmer when she was younger and she used to race a lot at Sydney Olympic Park and that's where I first saw the divers at the other end of the pool. And I, I, did, I, I did a bit of gym though and I loved like flipping around the house. So I was always really drawn to that stuff. Uh, but most of the kids like um, who make it like an elite level, they're kind of um, like talent scouted from a young age and they come from more acrobatic sports like your gymnastics or trampolining or tumbling and things like that. Yeah, all right, cool. And I've heard uh, you own like a kind of gym business with your brother. Is it called Hardcore? Uh, and that does that help with your training methods as well? How does that tie into your training methods? Yeah, it does actually. So it's basically it's uh, it's a gym that we run from home and it's predominantly for weightlifting. So we do like some – my brother and my sister coach for that business uh, and they do like PTs but then they also have a weightlifting club. So it's actually the biggest – weightlifting club in New South Wales at the moment, which is really cool. And basically I, I don't do the the coaching because I don't, um, I'm not a weightlifter, but I dabble in weightlifting a little bit and my brother and sister and teach me, teach me a bit of stuff. And it's been really cool just to, I think like the thing that I really learned along the way is that you just become so specialized, um, with your sport. And I've been diving now for like 20 years or something ridiculous so in some ways I'm very flexible and and I've got good mobility but in other ways muscle groups I don't use I'm I'm the opposite so weightlifting kind of helped me just um round that out a bit better and avoid that over specialization and it actually corrected some of my injuries because they just came about from kind of over specialization uh so yeah I kind of dabble a bit here and there in weightlifting and then I I basically um mentor the younger kids and run like the um, the education component of their of the youth scholarship program that we run there. Yeah, unreal. And halves sounds like Mel's been diving longer than since you've been born. So, bit of experience here, mate. So, I hope you are uh, listen up. <laughs> and I just, I just don't. How do you find the time? Like you're performing at an elite level. I've seen that you're now an ambassador for GoDaddy. Um, you've got your own activewear label. Like you said, you're involved in the gym. You've got a million and one mm-hmm. things. How the hell do you fit it in? I, I just don't get it. <laughs> Do you have a twenty-five hour day? Like <laughs> my schedule is very busy. Yeah, it's crazy. It's I, I'm very busy, and I just have to basically stay really organized. And uh, I think the thing that I struggle with the most is just uh, like obviously when you're an athlete, you have to put a hundred percent into that. So uh, like you've got to always, you know, that's the, my number one priority is always me as an athlete. But then all the other hours outside of that, I'm kind of go go go, and I'm I'm kind of busy doing stuff. And I think. The thing I struggle with then is that I when I, I don't actually get time to fit like work, work in if that's if you know what I mean like it's just like part of the work is the coaching and all that but then if you have to write programs or you have to do other things that it kind of has to get crammed in at night time or on weekends and I just find that I do lack a bit of time to just rest and recover and I think that's the hardest thing is that just then that turnaround time of having to get up wake up and do it all again the next day and put the time into diving but I think for me the the key is just being organized and. Um, and kind of having not just like a daily plan, but like a weekly plan, <laughs> trying to see where things will fit. And every, it's like a puzzle. Everything kind of fits in nicely. Uh, and I just have to be really careful with how I like spread my time because I don't have much spare time. So could, could you like just leave off what you make from diving or are these kind of other side things necessary for divers in Australia? 
Uh, I could, and I did for a long time. So I didn't really start my businesses or things like that until after the last Olympics in Rio 2016. Uh, and I think just, you know, I've been to a few Olympics, you never know, you know, it, when things could happen and, and you, you might not be able to dive anymore. So I, I just want to really get prepared for life after diving. And from a lot of the research and, and the advice that we're given from previous athletes and from, from the AOC, uh, they basically um, say it's really good to set your life up for after after sport while you're still an athlete instead of trying to then do it afterwards. So basically just try and set everything up for outside diving. And it is tough to manage, but also it does give me a really nice kind of life balance. Yeah, definitely. I think balance is so important for um for all athletes. And I'll tell you what, I've seen I've seen signature basketball shoes, I've seen signature football shoes, but in my research with you, Mal, I found that you have your own signature air mat. Now, I was gonna find out what an air mat was, but I <laughs> thought I'd find from the lady herself, what the hell is an air mat and how do you have a signature one? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, basically I um I'm an ambassador for Little Gym Shop. So they make gymnastics equipment uh, that you can use at home, which is perfect for lockdown. And because diving is very similar uh, to gymnastics in that dryland component that I mentioned, uh, and divers, obviously, we don't have pools and springboards at home that we can use to train. <laughs> so then in lockdown, all of our training is is basically just, just dryland training. And having things like these air floors um, are really helpful. You can somersault on them or flip on them. You can do all your core work, your conditioning, and it, ma- it just makes it more fun. So they're a great company, little gym shop. If anyone's looking for something <laughs> to use at home for some training, I would definitely recommend the air floors. Uh, they're great. And, um, and I yeah, it's good for – the whole family, like kids love them. And like I said, I'm a big kid. So I, I love training <laughs> on those kind of things. <laughs> Having your own signature air floors now, but started fair amount of time ago, almost two decades ago, uh, Com Games, 2006, people would have heard this a million times, but I still can't wrap my head around this. 13 years old at the 2006 Commonwealth <laughs> Games. Can you just talk me through that experience of being with all these older people being 13 years old at the Melbourne Commonwealth Games in 2006? Um, I know half, so I didn't even have my Bunsen burner license at 13, and Mel's performing at the Commonwealth Games. <laughs> I didn't have my pen Neither license. did I, don't worry. <laughs> yeah, me neither. <laughs> Everything was out of order for me. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it was, it was a pretty amazing experience. I just, like, I often reflect on that time because it was a bit crazy, but I think when you're young, you just kind of take it all in your stride, and I didn't really feel any pressure or anything because I was just young, unknown, and there wasn't any expectation on me, uh, not from from like the the general Australian public or the media. So it was it was just a really cool experience, and it was I think like it was the perfect comp to do like before an Olympic Games because it's all it's run really similar it, that it's a games event and it's basically the same thing but just without the you know that even more pressure of being an Olympics. And yeah, it was cool. I just kind of got a lot of sort of media attention around that time, and I just kind of. Loved it. I loved that whole experience and all the opportunities that came along with it, and and being able to um, get you know qu- uh, qualify and be able to wear the green and gold tracksuit and represent Australia for the first time at the senior comp was just an incredible feeling. Yeah, definitely. I know. I certainly know you got a lot of media attention at the time because, to be honest, I was seven at the time. We had to do a project <laughs> on a Commonwealth Games athlete, and I chose you because I actually thought it was so cool that somebody <laughs> just a few years older than me was like at the game. So yeah. Big, big inspiration of oh, mine. Awesome. Big inspiration of mine at the time. So, uh, yeah, and I guess, well, h- how do you go about being selected to the games? Like, how, as a thirteen-year-old, you know, how do you go through the pathways of being a, a junior member to the top level in the senior team? 
So in diving at the time, I was pretty lucky. I got selected to uh, go into this squad or, where they only took about three of us to begin with, and it was basically the first time that they were uh, having like this junior squad and trialling that. And we got to go into this elite squad um, basically like when the, the AIS was still a thing in diving. That's all kind of um, – uh, what's the word? Like it's all now in state programs rather than being in one national program now. But that was when there was a, just basically a national program for diving. And I got to go into this squad and train with Olympians who had literally just come back from the Athens Games and they'd won a bunch of medals. And it was one of the, I think it was the most successful games that they, like that diving had had. And, and that was just such a, an incredible opportunity for me. And there, I basically just got to train alongside these Olympians and see what they did and see what made them successful athletes. And I tried to just follow, you know, what they did and, and do the same things um, so that I would be successful. And, and that was such a great experience. It was also um, a little bit like a bit stressful because you had to kind of maintain your place in that squad. Uh, so there was that pressure of like always having that fear that you were going to be kicked out and that you weren't meeting the standards. So I think then for me, when to go and make that Commonwealth Games at 13, part of it was, you know, this amazing experience and, you know, it was all new and exciting. But the other part, I did feel a bit of pressure to like, I knew I had to make the games to kind of keep my place in the squad. And, and I definitely, it was kind of to like both, both sides. It was, it's, you know, incredible experience, but at the same time I knew that I had to go and perform and I, and I had, certain standards I had to meet. Yeah, that's that's unreal. Like I, I couldn't I don't know about you, Haas, I couldn't deal with those stresses <laughs> at the age of twenty two, let alone as a 13, yeah, 12 year old. So and then but you didn't just make the squad, you won a silver medal, which is unbelievable. And I think it's every kid's dream to rock up to school the next week with a buddy <laughs> an amazing achievement. Olympic gold, buddy Commonwealth Games medal. I mean what was it like being a Commonwealth Games silver medalist while you're still taking year eight math? <laughs> It was pretty cool, yeah. The, my school was really supportive, and and that was awesome to be able to come back. And they were all so excited for me, and they and they were all supporting me. And I think because it was a home games too, that was really special. Even though it was in Melbourne, so not where I was from, just having that home support. I think like home games are the best. And I, I was lucky enough that I got to do Gold Coast as well in 2018. And from the four Commonwealth Games I did, like there was no comparison between the home games and the the ones away. So I think yeah, just having all that support from my school when I was young. And, and doing that first games at home was, um, I think, a great way to start my career. Yeah, and you mentioned the 2018 Com Games in Gold Coast there, and I've heard you say that it was tricky to dive there because of the kind of weather conditions. Is that right? That's never something that I thought about for diving. Yeah, it was. It was scary. Actually, I said before I wasn't scared of my dive, but that pool, I was scared of everything. I was scared to walk up the stairs. I was scared to stand on the end of the platform. I was scared to go. And I think everyone was. We we um, basically like that comp. I think that comp for me was like one of the most, I guess, like if someone said, oh, what's, you know, the the comp in your career that you're that like means the most to you that that comp would probably be it because we were training there for like two years beforehand to try and get used to the conditions and every time we went there or had a comp there I'm not joking someone went to like the ER the hospital someone had to go to hospital every single time <laughs> we were there and it was just it just does crazy things to you, that pool it's just it's basically like right on the water and it's really windy like crazy crazy windy and it yeah it was just scary so wait, is it, is it, <laughs> but it was okay is, like when we were in so you go, you go. Oh, when we competed there, though, in April at the Com Games, the weather was much better. So we'd always been going there in, like, October 
November and it was the weather was a lot worse. And then when we went to Com Games, it was actually a lot better. But um, but I just think the journey of getting there was just it was quite scary for me that pool. Yeah. So is it an is it an outdoor pool? Yeah, it's an outdoor pool. Yeah. So we don't often like every now and then we'll have comps in outdoor pools, but most of our comps are indoors and we train indoors. Um, I did. I used to dive at the Gokas actually when I was really young. So before I got into that squad. Uh, where I trained with the like the older Olympians, I was actually on the Gold Coast before that, but I didn't dive off the, like the the ten or anything. I only dived off like five meter and did very basic <laughs> dives because I wasn't very good <laughs> before when I was younger. Yeah, and I've heard just taking it back to kind of first Commonwealth Games kind of time period. Just after that, is it right that you were uh, like homeschooled after that from a, like after year nine ish? Is that right? Yeah, I was. Yeah. So um, I went to Commonwealth Games, but then after that, that was kind of the start of my career. And then after that, I was doing a lot of international travel. And we used to have events where it was like a a World Series where it used to kind of go back to back for like up to a month um, at a time. And it was just kind of, and then other times it was just kind of come and go, come and go. So it made it really difficult for me. My school was really, really supportive. And I really appreciated that. But I think it just like, there's, you know, the school model just didn't fit with the travel model. And and even when I went away, it was really hard. Like when you when you tr- when you train at home, you usually do like early morning and afternoon, and then you go to school during the day. Whereas when you go and travel for a comp, even the training days, um, y- your training times are different, and it basically gets spread out across the whole day. So you have very little time to fit in study and that and that kind of thing. So it just was really difficult to to juggle both. So I ended up moving to homeschooling because I've always been pretty motivated and it was just more about like the time and the scheduling that was difficult for me. So yeah, that was, uh, that was a lot easier for me, but just generally though, I struggled a bit with school. I just didn't not I didn't struggle with the work. I just, I don't know. I found like uni was a bit more flexible and it just, it was just different, but school, I think if you do it as a normal person, it's probably better, but I didn't really, I missed out on a lot of social time and stuff like that. Um, so it, School was a bit of a hard time for me. Yeah, be, I could imagine it'd be intimidating for the other students speaking to a Commonwealth uh, medalist and an Olympic medalist. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I was so much smaller. Than I was just like this little, like, <laughs> nothing intimidating about me. But I, I can imagine, like, not just for diving, but for any sport, but I've heard with diving, like, being in it at such a young age, it can be a bit of a kind of toxic culture, I've heard, and maybe even like a bit of bullying it at certain levels when one person's like really young the rest are way older is that like right is that your experience uh that was my experience I don't think that there's like necessarily one sort of uh culture around it I just think in in general everyone has a bit of a different experience and for me when I came through I was basically the only super young one on the team with a with a group of older athletes and so I did struggle a bit to kind of fit in with that squad and uh and I think too even as we mentioned before when I was younger there was quite a bit of sort of media hype because I was I was young but I was like I was really tiny as well I think that's why they're um so interested (laughs) uh and that's something I struggle with but I think as I got older our team changed and I think our team culture um became really different and as someone now who's the oldest on the team I really don't like bullying or treating younger athletes um, in a, any way other than the way they should be treated. So I definitely don't do it and I try and support the team as much as possible and step in if I see any of that sort of stuff happening. But I think too now, it was just a different culture before. Like I mentioned, we had that one national program and it was just I think part of the thing was just the, the culture that the the 
management and administration created um, among the team, whereas now it's all filtered out into state programs and it, it's, it's just a better model, I think, for mental health in general. Yeah, it's good. It's good to hear that you're uh, setting the tone and classic half of the journalist student looking looking for the headline. Mel Wu <laughs> Wables diving culture is toxic. Watch him, Mel. Watch him. I, I know he looks like he's trustworthy, but I'd I'd watch him. And I so following on from the, and following on from those com games, you know, 2008 Olympics. I mean, how special was it? The fact that not only were you competing at your first Olympics, but your family got to go and watch. You know, you had your grandpa who was living in China. He got to watch you dive live for the first time at a home Olympic Games for him in, in an Olympic final and you ended up winning a medal. That must have been so special. Yeah, it was so amazing. So actually my grand, my family's Chinese, but my grandpa lives in Sydney as well. But just um, he, I don't he might have seen me dive a couple of times like as a younger athlete, but never like at that level. And because I was, I started diving when I was in Sydney, but then I lived in Brisbane for quite a few years. So he didn't see me dive for quite a few years. And, and I think the fact that he went, you know, went all the way over there to watch me and with my dad and my sister, Kirsten, I think that was really special as well. And being able to win the medal there. And I think there's just something about your first games that's always just, you know, it's the thing you've been chasing your whole life to, to be able to make that team and to be able to go there and then have my family there as well. It was just really cool. I'll tell you what, I'm going to check my source next time because it said that your grandpa lived in China. <laughs> so I'm not happy. I'm not happy with my sources. Oh, you can't <laughs> trust the media. Kind <laughs> of um, uh, like looking through the stats and stuff and watching the diving in these Olympics just gone, it's like China just dominates it completely. And, uh, in Beijing, I assume it would have been the same. So, are they, are they always just expected to win? Are they always the favourites? In diving, they're always the favourites. Yeah, they they have been strong for a very long time, and they just keep getting better and better. They are very hard to for the rest of the world to catch, but. It's good. I think it's good to have that high benchmark um, for people to continue to to strive towards. And and it is good to see, especially in the men's events, there's always athletes putting a bit more pressure on them, which is great to see. So hopefully, yeah, we can keep evolving in the sport and and try and bridge that gap a little bit. Yeah, we probably should have touched on this a bit earlier, but you've had a lot of success in the synchronized events. Uh, what, what, What do you attribute that to? So in Com Games, you won a silver, you uh, won silver at these, um, Olympics, you want, you've won a couple of other gold medals in the uh, in this event. Why do you think you had so much success in synchronized diving? So I think um, I definitely had a lot of success early on in my career in synchro, and I think that uh, a big part of that came down to, like I mentioned, we had that national program where everybody uh, had to come to one place and train together. So you had Australia's top athletes in the one place, and you got to basically then have the the best athletes kind of pushing each other to get better and better. And then when you pair those athletes together and you can train together every day, that makes a huge difference in being able to compete against teams who are doing the same overseas. They're training together for years and years and building these really strong teams. And that was probably the downside of then decentralizing that program. It was good in terms, there were many benefits, you know, for the mental health of the athletes and and the structure of that program. But it meant that everybody then went into their, and diving's not a huge sport. So uh, that, even though we had everyone in the national program by the time everyone, sorry, by the time everyone went to their states, um, uh, there wasn't many like in each state. So you had to pair with people in other states and so I think that's part of the reason why we didn't do as well in synchros because you couldn't train together as frequently and you had to go on teams and then only prepare a few days before the comp and that really affected things. How do they 
do the pairings? Like, do they kind of try to make the personalities of each person in the pair kind of complement each other, or is it they just put the best two together? Or draw your name out of the hat, like? <laughs> <laughs> it's basically, I think it's more like it's definitely like performance is number one thing in diving. So you, when you pick a pair, you definitely pick them based on the level of the individual divers, firstly, I think. And then secondly, um, everyone has their kind of own little style of diving, but you also pick pairs that are going to be the most compatible. So if you can, you want to pick like your top two divers and then hope that they're the most compatible. If not, you maybe would choose a team that's a bit more compatible either in height or in, you know, some people are a bit more fast twitch, some people are a little bit slower um, in when they create power for their dives. And then I think in general, we don't have a huge pool to draw from in Australia. So you basically then build the rapport and you build that personality-wise, the two people going together. But I think definitely we select more on performance um, to find a good compatible team. Yeah, okay, okay. Um, that's, re- that's really interesting. And so, yeah, so like we said, so you had a lot of success in the uh, the synchronised diving. And so by the time before you turned 17, you'd medaled at every major sporting event, you know, Olympics, world champs, com games. What, what was it like to have accomplished so much at a young age? And do you think that could have almost been a bad thing in the fact that you'd already achieved more than what a lot of people would in their entire careers? Uh, I don't think it was a bad thing. I think uh, for me, like I, I always, like I mentioned, there was a lot of pressure being in that program and I always felt that there was a lot of pressure to constantly strive for better performances. And so I never really, I guess, stopped to think about what I'd already done. I was just always focused on the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. And I think that actually helped in terms of like in diving, you actually have quite a few bad performances and it takes a long time to build consistency. So as a younger athlete, I think I was a better diver, but I was definitely a lot more inconsistent. So I had a lot of bad performances that I had to quickly bounce back from and learn to be resilient. And I think because I was always focused on the next thing, the next thing, it, it helped me bounce back more quickly. Um, and yeah, so I think I, I never, it's like cool to look back on now at this point in time, but I think though having that success when I was younger made me, it kind of helped build my confidence and realize, okay, I, I'm I'm at this high standard. I can do well. I just have to kind of back myself and believe in myself. Yeah, definitely. And I think you did it, took it better than Harps and I. I'm sure if Harps and I had achieved that at 17, we'd, we'd refuse to buy a drink at any bar in Australia. We'd be, dro- <laughs> yeah. I'd be dropping my name everywhere. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. And it's interesting that you touched on that consistency because I think that from I'm not a diving expert, but you've been super consistent in your Olympic results. You know, in 2012, coming fourth, 2016, you came fifth. You didn't get the medals, but it was still you don't dive really consistently to make the final. Is that something that you think has been really beneficial? And what was it like also missing out on those medals at those games? It was it was pretty tough uh, missing out on medals at the games. Um, in London, when I came fourth, that was quite close. And I think I wasn't... Uh, like in my where I was at in my career, I think I definitely wasn't at my peak diving, and I and I still dived like you mentioned, like relatively consistently. But I, I knew I could have gotten in the medals. You know, I just needed to dive a little bit better than that, and so that was disappointing. But then I think for me, Rio was more disappointing because then I had the four years to to get ready again, and I felt like I was in a much better position in terms of how I was diving and physically and everything in Rio. And I didn't like I performed well, but not as well as I wanted to. And and I just knew I was capable of getting up in the medals. And I and I just 
yeah, wasn't able to do it. And I took that quite hard. And I just remember like the days after my comp, I really struggled in Rio. And uh, I remember there was like this lake in the middle of the the village and I just would do laps of the lake and just cry for for days and just be like, should I keep going? Like, is this really worth it? And it was just that, that feeling for me. I was like, I don't want to feel like this again. And, and it it took me a few days of laps and tears to, to be like, okay, so you either don't want to feel like this and, and you don't do it or you knuckle down and you, and you don't feel like this again because you're going to do a good job and you're not going to feel like this. Um, so I'd have a pretty hard chat with myself, but I, I just remember being that feeling. I don't think I'll forget that feeling like that, just deep, deep, deep disappointment in myself and that I'd let, you know, the team around me down and my family and, and things like that. I took that pretty hard. So it was just like your own kind of chat with yourself that got you through it or did your coach kind of convince you to uh, stick stick with it and keep going? Uh, I think like I spoke with my friend, my teammate, uh, Esther a lot. She, she did laps the first day with me. Um, and, and I, she, I didn't even know if we spoke, she was just kind of there with me. And, and I think she could really see that I really was struggling with, with that result that I'd gotten. And, uh, and she was, she was going to keep diving and, and she's kind of like been, uh, we've been changing together now probably, I think probably since around 2012, um, in, in Swiss and Sydney and, uh, she's you know such a huge support for me as a teammate and I think just having her there um telling me you know like come on like just go for it you, you know you can do this another four years let's do it just knuckle down and, and I knew that she was going to be there training hard as well and, and that was a, um I think a huge help for me and then pulling myself out of that and then just being right we, we're going to just go for it in the next four years yeah, and I was having a look through the stats again, and I think in 2016, like you said, you came fifth, but that would have got you a silver in London. I might be wrong with that, but something like that. And uh, obviously, kind of all sports improve through the years, whatever it is, but diving uh, we're talking about here. So like, is a perfect dive or a high-scoring dive now, uh, or a high-scoring dive in, I don't know, 10 years ago when you started, is that lower scoring now than it was then, if you know what I mean? I think it's really difficult to compare scoring. Like you can do it on paper, compare scores from one year to the next or one Olympics to the next. But I think it's always different when you're there in the moment and judging and diving is subjective. So like at the end of the day, it is in the hands of of the judges watching the dives and, and sometimes they can go with you and sometimes they can go against you. And I'm pretty fortunate in my career that um, – I've been around for a while and usually the judges go with me. I think they're like, don't, they don't mind my style of diving, um, <laughs> which is good. Uh, so that that's good, but it, it is, it can be a bit subjective. So it is hard to compare. I think the easiest thing, even like round to round, things change. Usually in a final, they'll, you know, it's, it's just, it's a bit more exciting. They'll throw out bigger scores as well. So it's, it's probably like easiest to compare um, one round of dives, like the divers in that round, but also to um, DDs. Sometimes they evaluate those and change them over the years. So my one of my dives was a higher DD, like back in two thousand eight, than what it is now, because they reevaluated that and changed it. So that affects scores as well between games. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. Really, it's really interesting, and 
And hearing you before talking about considering throwing it away, I listened to one of your podcasts in preparation of this and you touched on that you, you had a lot of partners and a lot of them retired, even ones younger than you. So it seems like, not not to answer from you, but the question is, is that, so it seems like diving a lot of people seem to re, uh, retire at a young age. You know, people also can compete at a younger age. Did you ever consider throwing it, um, retiring just through, through this process, apart from just after the 2016 Olympics? Yeah, I think that like retiring is really individual in diving. So some people retire young, some people retire when they're older. There's not really like a particular age. I think it just really depends on your personal circumstances. And unfortunately, most of the time it comes down to injuries that force people out of the sport and they just like physically can't do it anymore. Uh, so I think for me, like there have been times where I where I thought about it for different reasons. I think the earliest one was probably like even back after my first Olympics when I was 17 and I um, had like a coach that took me when I was a junior to all the way to the Olympics, you know, in that few years and he basically taught me everything I knew. And then after Olympics I had to move up to the head coach and uh, we just really didn't uh, gel well at all and I just found the environment in general. I was quite unhappy and, and I wasn't enjoying it. So I actually, that's when I decided to move to Sydney I moved to Sydney when I was 17, but when I made that decision, I I really wanted to quit diving. I didn't like, I didn't want to do it anymore. And I basically thought, oh, I'm going to either quit or do something drastic. So I, I ended up, I thought I'll, I'll keep doing it, but I'll move to Sydney. And, and I've been here since with, with my coach, Charles Sabrina, and, and I think that was a really good move for me. Um, but then I think like after that, there were still definitely times when I thought about that. There, um, probably definitely like my sister, when she passed away, that was a time when it's not necessarily thought of, I didn't really think about it in terms of just diving. I just, I just want to quit life to be honest. I didn't know how to like continue on. And, and I think that was just like a really tough time for my family and it's still really tough for us now. And I think it will always be really tough. Um, and then probably more like in the last few years with injuries and that kind of thing, I've really questioned whether or not I'll be able to overcome them. And it's not just about being injured. It's just knowing that the injuries stop me from performing my best. And I think that's why I questioned it. Like I'm putting these hours, I'm pushing my body and I, it's not, it's not doing what it's supposed to do. And, and I think just that doubting myself that, you know, if I can't physically do it, but yeah, luckily I have a really good support team, really good physio behind me. So I was able to overcome those injuries, but there's been, yeah, a few, over the years, a number of reasons, but I've def, definitely had those kind of conversations with myself through the years. Yeah. It's so amazing. You telling that story, listing off all those challenges and culminating in the first individual medal at these Olympics. But before we get on to these Olympics, you mentioned the coach. So what does the perfect coach for you look like? Obviously, each person has a different kind of preference for what their coach is like, but what does your ideal coach look like? Uh, so my ideal coach is definitely supportive. I think because I'm quite self-motivated and self-driven, I don't really respond that well to someone like pushing my buttons on purpose and and making me feel not that I need a lot of just fake positive support. I definitely like the criticism and I like to be able to continue improving. But I think if that comes from the right place and it's someone giving me critiques to help me improve rather than like little jabs to, um, because I do struggle a lot with self-esteem and I think when the jabs are, can be nasty or um, not with the best intentions, that's something that doesn't work well for me. So I'm pretty easygoing other than that there was an athlete. So I think just like a coach who is prepared to put in the work, the same work that I am, works really well. And we kind of feed off each other then, both of us putting, you know, 
um, committing everything to achieving their goal. And I think you just have to be on the same page as your coach as well. Um, so if they've, they've got big goals and you've got big goals and, and you know what you're both working towards, I think that that then if you put a plan of action in place to get there is a, is a really good mix. Yeah, wow. And to be honest, I got chills before listening to you, Mel, just talk about how you dealt with adversity. It's really inspirational and interesting, I guess, your opinions on coaching because mm-hmm. obviously coaches differ from sport to sport and I guess it proof is in the pudding, had an awesome uh, 2020 Olympics. And first of all, I just want to talk about sort of the strategy behind the diving team. So the diving team got there, you were there for about two and a half weeks. So you got there a lot earlier than other athletes. Can you explain what the why that was? So we weren't actually supposed to go in that early. We were supposed to go, we were supposed to a camp in Brisbane and we actually had this whole big plan that Diving Australia did where we had two groups. So we had like the springboard group who was going to compete first and then we had the platform group and we were going to, there was a bit of overlap in Brisbane, but then springboard was going to go over there first and then leave first and all that. But basically right before we went away, we had lockdown in Sydney and then I think like even the other states, so I think um brisbane was in a lockdown as well so we couldn't even get there to to brisbane so they basically had to can the camp and then we in sydney were getting worried because i think ours was a bit worse than other states that they were kind of shutting we had people training in the pool but then gradually it was getting less and less and they just were closing it off to you know first of all it was the younger squads and then it was only the national squad and then it was only Olympians training. So towards the end, we were worried that we were like not going to be able to train or we were going to get stuck here. So we ended up, they ended up changing our flights and we went over there earlier than expected just to basically get out of Sydney. Uh, and I think it was cool. We were happy about it because we, you know, normally you get to spend the whole of Olympics there, but we were already going to have like a, only a short time. So we were happy to go there early and have more time in Tokyo. So I wasn't actually that mad about it. And it was, it's actually, it was really challenging the training before we went away when our squads like dwindled and there was only a few of us training and it kind of coincided with winter. It got really cold in the pool. It was quiet and there was like nobody else in the pool. Like not even, there was like maybe a couple of swimmers or something. Um, I actually found that, that training right before Tokyo really challenging mentally. And I had to really kind of dig deep mentally and be like, Hey, you're training for Olympics here. But it was, uh, it was like a bit hard to stay motivated in that time. So when we went over there early, I was literally like celebrating. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I saw, um, the diving team for Australia only got like finalized in mid June and then you were over there by mid July. So that turnaround, like barely any time, one month. Uh, but, uh, Lockie's got a question next, I think. Yeah, yeah. So I think you've had your injuries through your career and it's really interesting. And this is something where you ask a lot of our Olympic athletes, but I think for you it rings more true, is that the benefits of the delayed Olympics? Because if the Olympics ran in 2020 as they were planned, is it true that you wouldn't have been able to compete? Uh, I don't I don't actually know. I was quite injured and, and I wouldn't have done any comps for a whole year. So I was basically trying to get ready for this deadline of Olympic trials and that was going to be my first comp in a year and off the back of not much training. So I was quite worried in 2020 that I would have to go into that comp like that. So when the Olympics got postponed, I was actually like, I was really happy (laughs) because it gave me time to recover from my injuries properly, not have to rush it. And then on top of that, prepare properly for Olympic trials. And I feel like I really, I ended up being able to get that really solid preparation coming in. I got to do a couple of comps beforehand, not, not big ones, but enough. I had one really bad comp. So it was really good to get that like out of the way. And that was kind of a bit of a kick up the bum as well for me, which I was glad to have that bad comp. And it just kind of just helped me get everything fine tuned I needed going into trials. And then 
Um, and you mentioned the quick turnaround. That's actually pretty normal in diving. We usually have our trials probably May or June. So they're usually relatively late, but it was kind of good then to be able to just um, piggyback off that prep for trials going into Olympics. Uh, and and I, I was so glad to be able to get that really good prep in. Yeah, so getting that good prep, you're feeling pretty confident. Are you coming into Tokyo? Yeah, I was I was feeling uh, pretty confident, uh, but not 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 overly like I don't know how to describe it. confident. I always just focus on myself and like compare myself to to my own ability. So where I was probably in March of this year to then trials in I think they're in um, when were they June? <laughs> I can't remember now. Um, yeah, basically I. I feel like I basically didn't want to have any regrets and I put everything into that prep period and it was like I mentioned had that kick up the bum and I worked really hard on mindset I worked really hard on the areas that I knew were weak areas for me and I felt a lot more confident going into trials about my own ability to be able to perform the way that I wanted to perform and then I didn't really think about the competition too much and then I was lucky that I, I did that and, and I made the team but I never base my confidence like on how I'm going to go compared to other people or where I'm going to come. I always just base it on my experience and, and my previous experience with how I've dived. Yeah, awesome. And it sounds like you are ripe, you were prepared, and then you went to the Olympics and you obviously first ever individual Olympic medal, bronze. How was it? What was that <laughs> immense personal satisfaction like getting that medal? But not only getting the medal, but walking away with a performance that I'm sure that you can be immensely proud of. It was a pretty special moment for me. I think just sharing that moment with my coach, we've, we've been working together now for, uh, it must be like 11 years <laughs> because of the extra oh, year wow. because it's 2021. Um, so we've been working together a long time and I think to get that, I think it was so special to me. That medal was not just an, that achievement for me, but I've, I've had a really good support team behind me, especially this year and or the last few years really going into into this comp and that includes my coach, my family, my physio, dietitian, my strength and conditioning coach. I feel like all the stars kind of aligned for me this year to help me with that prep. And, and I did get that really good prep in. And that wasn't just on my own. That was a whole team of people helping and supporting me get there. And I think to win that medal was just not just for me, but it was, you know, it was for the whole team. And, and I was just super, super happy to be able to do that. Yeah, yeah. And so you've got that bronze. Now, what are your plans post-Olympics? I mean, you spoke about a home Commonwealth Games. There's a home Olympics in 2032. Are we going to be seeing Mal Wu dive in 11 years' time at the Olympics? <laughs> Look, I don't know about 11 years' time. Uh, at this point, I'm just taking a bit of a break. I, like um, I was telling you guys before, I've got a, quite a few projects outside of diving and running three businesses and and hopefully when things go back to normal I'll be back coaching again so I might just enjoy this chance to have a bit of a break and I've just been staying fit and and still exercising and then when we come out of lockdown I'll, I'll go back and focus on training again uh, but I haven't really focused too much on on the future goals yet I'm just going to kind of enjoy this time <laughs> while I'm <laughs> Now, a question that we ask like, as a bit of a final question uh, before we get to our last segment on every show. Uh, so obviously every guest that we have has their kind of ups and downs and challenges, adversities, positives and negatives. Uh, and to be a bit corny, that kind of shapes who everyone is really. So the question is, do you have a life philosophy or like a quote or anything like that that you live by? Uh, oh, this is a tough question. Mm, I don't know. I think I have a quote tattooed on my like left rib that says only as much as I dream can I be. And I think that's like really important for me just because I think I definitely, it's so true. Whatever I dream, whatever I put out there, I, I like 
I can do. But I think usually when I miss the mark or I don't, or I feel disappointed, I don't do what I want to do. The, the person that was holding me back from doing that was me. So I think it just is a, that reminder that if I just like open that door for myself and allow myself to, to feel limitless and to do anything that I want to do, then it's possible. Yeah, wow, that's yeah, that's right awesome, that. and that's an awesome tattoo. It's a bit more inspirational than Harper's Southern Cross tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you patriotic? I love it. <laughs> Definitely do my any tattoo just for the listeners. Um, and of course, I mentioned that final listening segment that we have. We have it on every episode. It's our favourite segment of the show. Of course, it is the Where Do We Begin quiz. So uh, I'll hit the music. really gets the shivers going down the spine that music (laughs) geez i'm inspired (laughs) (laughs) the last thing that we have always at the end of the show we do a little quiz and we've got five questions i'm going to be hosting Lockie up against mel five questions all kind of vaguely related to mel's life and career the guest's life and career in case uh, in this case of course that is you mel so five questions your name is your buzzer um yeah you ready to go guys I'm right. <laughs> always happy to start off my day off a win, so let's get into it, Harps. <laughs> okay, let's go. So, question one. Now, Mel, I've heard uh, that one of your nicknames is Woodles, so I've got a question about a Woodle. So, a Woodle is actually a dog breed, but uh, it's a, a Woodle is a cross between which two dogs? Oh, I have no idea. Something in a poodle. <laughs> <laughs> Something in a poodle. I was about to say Worcestershire sauce in a poodle. That's the only W word I could think of. I can't think of a okay. breed that starts with oh, W. I'll tell you, it's a some, something uh, terrier. A something terrier. Oh, I don't know. I've got no Wolf terrier. Wolf terrier. Wait, is that uh, a dog? Incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. You can have this point, Lockie. <laughs> I don't think Lockie's got either. Wolf You're terrier. No, I've got uh, Wolf Terrier was the best one I could go with. <laughs> uh, it's a, a Welsh Terrier and a Poodle. Jeez, interesting, interesting fact. You don't, do you have any Woodles running around the house, Harps? No, no, I don't have any Woodles. Uh, I, had, I had a look at pretty, pretty nice looking dog. Wouldn't mind a Woodle. Um, but move to question two. Good start, nil all. Uh, so move to question two. Uh, I, I believe uh, you were born on the third third of May, nineteen ninety two. And I had a look at the Australian charts, the singles charts, on the third of May, nineteen ninety two. Topping the charts was a song called "Under the Bridge." Can you tell me uh, which band uh, performs the song "Under the Bridge"? Oh my God, I have no idea. <laughs> okay, I think, I think this question. one you kind of How do you expect us to know this, Harps? <laughs> I, I, Wait, I do we get some a people would not. You kind of know it or you don't, but I'll give you Mate, a clue. Th- thanks, band, Mel. Thank you. This Thank band, you. Uh, the name of the band is something, if you put it in your food, it would make it a lot spicier. Four words in the name of the band. Red Hot Chili Peppers. Bang. He's got it. Absolutely Wait, that, yeah, correct. Very nice, Lockie. Oh, that was a good guess. <laughs> and, <laughs> I, I wouldn't have known it without that clue, but thank you, Mel. I tell Harper every week that the questions I've got no idea, and he goes, oh, geez, everybody I know knows. So I'm like, Harper, are you mates buddy Nobel Prize winners? I'm so bad Like, at seriously, these. how the <laughs> hell? You're definitely going to win, Lucky. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Mel's lowering my defences before she jumps in and destroys it. <laughs> 
Yeah, she'll slide in there on question five uh, where she can get the five-point clue. But we'll move to question three first up. So uh, there are a few famous woos going around. Uh, Another famous woo, not yourself, Mel, but John Woo, uh, W-O-O. He's a director, a Hollywood director. So John Woo directed which sequel starring Tom Cruise, action sequel starring Tom Cruise? Mission Impossible? I don't know. Sequel. I don't even know. I'll I'm tell you so that, bad. You, you're, you're getting very close. You're getting very close. Just add a little sequel Mission to that. Mission Impossible 2. Lucky. Yeah, Lockie, Mission Impossible 2. That is very cheap of you, very dirty of you, mate. But he's, he's got it absolutely right. Lucky's got the point. Very nice. I was like, hang on, was he even in that? I don't even know. Lucky's got 3 nil up. 2 nil. I didn't get the first question, Harps. Oh, yes, it. yes, yes. Not wrong. 2-0, two 2-0 nil, two nil to Lockie. Um, yeah, good on you, Lockie. 2-0 up. But there, you can still come back, Mel. We'll move to question four. So, of course, your initials, MW. There's another MW Olympian uh, in the most recent Australian Olympic team. So the question is, which Australian swimmer won the 4 by 100 meter freestyle gold in the 2020 Tokyo Olympics and has the initials MW? Is it a male or female? It's a female and won gold in this event in 2016 and 2020. Uh, I've got no idea. I've got no idea. Pass. I'll, I'll give it to Mal. Mal Mal's oh, best sorry. mates with the whole Olympic team, so she'll know. Can we have a hint? Of course. Please? Another hint? <laughs> uh, okay. For, okay. I'm trying to think of a clue for the – okay, the last name. Uh, have you seen the movie Cars? Uh, what, Lightning McQueen? <laughs> Yeah, like that's the only thing. Okay. Cars no, that not I know. Lightning McQueen, but the actor, the the actor who voices Lightning McQueen, same last name as the actor who voices Lightning McQueen. Matt, oh, Maddie Wilson. Wilson, Meg Wilson, Meg Wilson, Meg Wilson. Mel has got it absolutely correct with Madison Wilson. Very nice. Just brought it back to three one. Yay! Jeez. I got one. <laughs> <laughs> Give us a fist bump. Give us a fist bump. <laughs> Mel, you're actually still in the game. It's question five, so it's the last question, but a few extra bonus points on offer in this question because, as all frequent listeners to the show will know, it's the who am I question. So I'm going to go down from five points all the way down to one point, give you a series of clues, of course, leading to who I am. So uh, I believe you kicked off your Tokyo campaign in the Olympics on the 4th of August. So that was a very, very significant event here in Australia. But the second most significant event in Australia on the 4th of August was this person celebrating their 32nd birthday. So the five-point clue is I was born on the 4th of August, 1989 in somewhere in Australia. Long run up to that clue. But I'll move to the four-point clue uh, for four points. When I was 14 years old, I won the inaugural Road to Tamworth competition at the Tamworth Country Music Festival. I don't know. I'm not, a, no I'm not a country music guy, to be honest, Harps. <laughs> <laughs> it's Keith Urban, 32. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll that would be mine, those I'll move to the three-point clue. Uh, now, Lockie's 2-1 up, so Mel needs to get uh, at least two points to take out the quiz. So for the three-point clue, I won Best Actress in a Supporting Role at the 2012 Actor Awards for my performance in The Sapphires. Oh, is this a, oh, is this a female? Can't tell you that yet, but do you want to have a guess at who it is? 
Wait for the wait for the clue, man. Oh, come on, can't ask the quiz master questions like that. It compromises the it, the integrity of the competition. Is it exactly. Jessica Malboy? No. We'll get a bit of a drum roll going to see if it is Jessica Malboy. <laughs> Jessica Malboy is absolutely correct. That was meant to be a bit of a sound effect for the winning thing there, but it was all just fuzzy noise. But anyway, congratulations, That's Matt. because the fans wanted me to win, Harbs. That's yeah. why he did that one. <laughs> They've hacked into my computer. Gee. But congratulations, Mel. Awesome win. How are you feeling Yay. after that? Awesome comeback. Oh, thank you. She's awesome, by the way. She's cool. Oh, I'm yeah. glad I got yeah. that one right. <laughs> Jeez, congrats, congrats, Mel. I'd say the better person won, but I can't lie on the podcast. Didn't so. we tie, though? Is that, that's a tie, isn't it? No, no. You took it out, Mel. You got three points. Oh, at the there end you there. go. So you won it four two. Oh. Four two. Oh, Congratu- well, there you go. Congratulations. <laughs> and, uh, great battle as always, and thanks so much for coming on the pod, Mel. It was absolutely awesome. Thank you yeah, so much. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Thank yeah. Thanks so much, Mel. We, uh, of course, this is our first episode back. So for all the listeners, we've got heaps more episodes coming out every week, like usual from now. So thanks for tuning in, and thanks again, Mel, for coming on. Thank you.